Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Radzeski, here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. On today's episode, we're talking with Talia Milgram Elcott, founder and executive director of 100K in 10. Launched in the wake of President Barack Obama's 2011 State of the Union speech, in which he called for training more than 100,000 new STEM teachers by 2021, 100K in 10 not only helped make that goal a reality, it also reshaped how leaders think about STEM education, networks, and people along the way. Now the organization is looking ahead to its next moonshot goal. Talia, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Hi, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Talia, presidents call for all sorts of things in their State of the Union addresses. And that doesn't mean that those things, though, actually happen. So why did that goal, training 100,000 excellent STEM teachers by 2021, inspire action when so many of those other goals articulated in State of the Union addresses probably never even move forward? A year after this State of the Union, the Washington Post did an analysis of all of the calls in the State of the Union and how they had fared. Most of them were dead in the water. No progress had been made or they had been rejected by the Congress of that year. And so it was only a few of them that were moving forward at all. And actually about this one, they said something like a coalition called 100K in 10 has taken up this call, but it's too early to tell. I like held on to that for 10 years until just this past fall, we reached and surpassed the goal. And so what is it about this goal or this call to action that mattered? I think one, it was very hard to get to, but in reach. I kind of think of it sometimes like a tippy toe goal. You could just barely reach it, but you've got to really stretch big enough to force us into radical collaboration as a field that wasn't yet working together that way. And still, if we actually did that work, we could get there. And so that was very inspiring to first the founding organizations, 28 pioneering organizations that joined together and then over time to hundreds, more than 300 organizations that made commitments. I think the second piece was that by 2011, it was increasingly clear that the STEM fields were the growing fields, that STEM jobs were the jobs that paid well, and that the most important challenges that our planet and our country needed to solve were going to require STEM knowledge, and that we did not have yet the human capacity to respond to those challenges, and that if we were going to do that well, it was going to require different and more teaching inside of STEM, inside of our classrooms and schools. Talia, we don't have marching bands or fireworks here in the recording studio. I don't think the city would allow that, but I feel like this is a great moment to celebrate, right? And let's not overlook 100,000 new excellent STEM teachers in our classrooms all across this country. That is just enormous and deserves huge congratulations. Thank you so much. You know, when we announced this and celebrated it as a network this past November with a lot of special shine from President Obama himself, we actually put on some dance music and videos of, of all kinds of people dancing. And we had everyone just turn off their videos and get up and dance because we forget sometimes that 
we've got to be able to like celebrate and feel it in our bodies. We deserve the dance after the work. So Talia, let's talk about how you got there. So you founded 100K in 10 in the wake of this State of the Union address, but training 100,000 excellent STEM teachers in 10 years is something that's beyond the scope of any individual organization. So for our listeners, 100K in 10 wasn't doing the recruiting and the training and retaining of teachers itself. Can you describe the approach that your organization took instead? You've written that 100K in 10 is not your grandfather's coalition. What do you mean by that? What makes it unique? So we believed that the capacity to do great things already existed in the amazing organizations, universities, nonprofits, school districts, and others that already existed that were all over the country. But what we didn't have was the support to help those organizations connect with each other to learn from what was working, to learn from what was not working, and to solve problems together that were really hard to solve on their own. That that was really what the country needed. And so we designed 100K and 10 to respond to that need. First, we asked every organization to do more than just sign their names. We sign our names to so many things, and then we go about business as usual. And so we asked everyone who wanted to join to make a commitment, something that they could uniquely contribute from their own assets and resources, from their own best sense of who they were. What is their offering to this joint effort? And that is what over time, more than 300 organizations did, committing to prepare more teachers, to give their elementary school teachers different experiences in STEM, to support those teachers, to improve and to stay longer, to design curriculum, to change policy, to fund, to tell the story. And folks took those commitments really seriously. We audited them, checked in with them every year. And then we had folks reaching out to us, like, I'm ahead of my commitment. I want to make a new one. Or like, I'm struggling with this. How can we help each other to solve it? So that was the first piece was this network of action, network of commitments. And that there were from the get-go, likely and unlikely actors. If we're going to hit a goal this big for a nation, it's going to mean that not just the usual suspects are contributing. It's going to mean that Folks who hadn't before thought that this was their issue understand how important STEM teachers, STEM learning is to their future and their organizational success as well, and they get into. And so that's what happened over time as we grew. Talia, you're mentioning these organizations. It was a couple dozen to begin with, then it's more than 300 a decade in. So who were some of these organizations, the ones that maybe you or I would expect to be there to be partners? And more interestingly, like who were some of those unexpected partner organizations that came to be part of this? One of my favorite things to do is to talk about these amazing organizations and the unexpected alliances that are possible. And so we had universities from very small private universities that prepare teachers to the California State University system, preparing more teachers than anyone else to online only universities like Western Governors University. We had alternative teacher preparation programs like residencies and Teach for America and TNTP. We had museums and science-rich institutions, a symphony and a zoo, botanical gardens, the Girl Scouts and Google, so corporations and nonprofits, but also organizations that often compete with each other for resources or find themselves on opposite sides of the negotiating table. So we had school districts and unions. We had charter management organizations and school districts, traditional preparation programs and alternative teacher preparation programs. And not only were they all making commitments 
to the same goal. But in this network, they were working together, sometimes literally co-funding projects to bring solutions to themselves and to the field. So 100K in 10, as we've noted, met and actually exceeded its goal. 10 years after Barack Obama's 2011 State of the Union, the U.S. had added 108,000 STEM teachers. Now, on one hand, as Greg noted, that is a huge accomplishment. On the other, you've noted that along the way, 100K and 10 realized that adding new teachers was only part of the equation, that in order to address the shortage of STEM teachers, you had to understand its root causes. How did you go about doing that? As we built this network, we spent most of our time talking to organizations about what they were experiencing and helping to nourish a learning ecosystem where folks were sharing their successes so other people can build off of them, but also sharing their struggles because maybe somebody else had a great solution there, or maybe lots of people were struggling and they could come together to create or to bring to market a new solution. In the course of doing that, what we began to see first in small ways and then all of a sudden is that people were struggling across what felt like dozens of different facets of this problem. And we began to feel that actually you really can't solve a problem that you don't understand. We each saw it from our own little slice of where we stand on this earth, but it was very hard to put those slices together to create a whole. And so we talked to and really listened to, I should say, thousands of people, including teachers, STEM undergraduates who did not want to become teachers, and STEM teachers who had left the field, as well as principals, administrators, and other experts across the education ecosystem. And what we heard from them, we distilled down into like a complete map of the STEM teacher challenge. Why is it so hard to get and keep great teachers, especially in STEM? And we found there were about 120 reasons why this was true and that not all of those reasons were equally impactful and that there were some of them that rose to the top as opportunities for action and for change. This is Greg Baer along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Talia Milgram Elcott, founder and executive director of 100K in 10. So Talia, in 2021, after meeting this initial moonshot goal of adding 100,000 new STEM teachers, you launched what's called an uncommission. So what on earth is an uncommission? What did you set out to do? And what emerged from whatever your uncommission is? So the uncommission is intended to be just that. It's an antidote to the ways we used to set our goals. We used to set our goals and even the original 100K and 10 goal by bringing together a few people at the top of their fields who would scan the field from a distance and tell everyone, sort of pronounce, what are the most important things that we should do? And as we neared the end of the first 10-year moonshot and could see that moon was in sight, what we knew is though these partners had prepared more than 100,000 STEM teachers, we also knew that there were so many classrooms especially in schools that were serving our Black, Latinx, and Native American young learners that did not have STEM teachers, that did not offer chemistry, did not offer calculus, did not offer physics, let alone engineering or computer science or statistics or environmental science. Our work was not done. So the question was, how do we find this next moonshot? Do we pull together another commission, like the one that launched 100K and 10? Or do we turn to and trust the young people themselves, especially those who have been most excluded from STEM opportunity, and ask them to guide us. 
we went with the second choice. And so the uncommission was our massive participatory listening moment in which we invited young people from all over the country, including dozens of young people from Pittsburgh who shared with us their experience. We invited them to tell us a story about their time when they were in pre-K to 12, learning in science and technology and engineering and in math, any story they wanted to tell us and tell us how it made them feel. And what we heard from these young people, we committed to make that our next moonshot goal. Talia, you've written that knowing that you have a place in math or science, in tech or engineering classrooms, is a prerequisite to success in STEM. When students do, the sky is the limit. And when they don't, they never achieve their full potential. Can you tell us more about this sense of belonging? What is it and what are some of the ways that you see STEM teachers fostering it in classrooms and beyond? So when we finished the uncommission over the course of about two, two and a half months, we had heard from 600 young people from all over the country, 38 states. 82% of those young people were young people of color. Average age was 21 years old. And we kind of were listening for and expected to hear them tell us stories about their teachers or lack of teachers, about their labs and science spaces or lack thereof, about the curriculum and whether they had opportunities outside of the class. Those are what we thought we would hear. But in almost every story, when I say almost every story, I mean more than 90% of these stories, what these young people were talking about was actually about belonging. They use all different words, like I felt like I belonged or I didn't feel like I had a place or the teacher connected to me or the teacher made me feel like I didn't deserve to be in the classroom. When we saw that, we realized like we can't look away from that anymore. It was when someone made them feel like they belonged in STEM, that they had a place, that they had a right to be there, that there was something inspiring and connected to their real life experience in these subjects. That was when these kids lit up, these young learners, one after the next, talked about stories, sometimes after years or more than a decade of feeling like they did not have a place in these areas and these subjects. One experience of connection could change their life trajectory. And more often than anyone else, the person who made that shift toward belonging and by belonging toward STEM was their teacher. So Talia, you find yourself on the launch pad of a new moonshot goal for 100 and K and 10, supporting these learners whom you're describing who've been long marginalized and who haven't felt connected, who maybe felt like they didn't belong, who really didn't feel the love of the caring adults around them. So this moonshot, what are you anticipating? How might this unfold? How will 100 K and 10 support great STEM learning across this nation during this next decade? So here is what we're thinking in a spirit of hopefulness and uh, anticipation and a fair bit of like raw fear, which a big goal should spur. Here's what we think. The STEM teacher shortage and the way that it impacts our young learners of color disproportionately, our young learners who grow up in poverty disproportionately, that shortage is not gravity. It doesn't need to exist. It's not built in to the universe. It is something that we have built as humans and we can unbuild. But it took us decades to create it, one could say centuries, and it will take us decades to get out of it. 
the first decade, we proved it was possible for organizations to work together and achieve something big. Our next decade, our intention is to make a significant dent in the STEM teacher shortage nationally and do that in the context of belonging. What we're talking about is 150,000 new STEM teachers prepared, 150,000 STEM teachers retained, because if we do not create schools worthy of those teachers to stay, we will not create the kind of environments in which students can thrive. And that all of those teachers who will be leaders in their schools and communities must foster and be supported to foster classrooms of belonging for their students. If we do that, we believe we can essentially reduce the STEM teacher shortage by a third in this coming decade, that we would in the following decade commit to ending the STEM teacher shortage entirely. Talia, we want to end with a quote by one of the students who shared their story with you. This is from Samantha, who is now 21 years old, living in Texas, reflecting on her chemistry teacher. And she said that the best teachers are, quote, excited to actually teach others, and they want to make you understand. They're not forcing it on you. It's like they're sharing their favorite story or their favorite hobby. I will never forget how she made me feel about chemistry. And we love that quote because it reminds us of one of our favorites from Fred Rogers, who said, the best teacher is someone who loves what he or she does and just loves it in front of you. What is it that allows a teacher to love his or her subjects and to love it in front of students? I'm so grateful that you brought Samantha's story forward. I'm holding her story and Bradley's and Bailey's and Morgan's and hundreds of other ones. And I would just encourage everyone who is listening to go read one of these stories at theuncommission.org. They are beautiful, honest, hopeful, and raw testimonials to what it is like to be a learner in our classrooms today. Just as much as it is so hard to be what you can't see for our young learners, it is so difficult for our teachers to create environments of flourishing, of thriving, of belonging, of exploration, of failure, and of perseverance if they don't experience those environments themselves. And so how do we create classrooms where teachers can teach what they love and love it in front of their kids, which is just a beautiful encapsulation of what great teaching is and comes out through all of these stories so much. When students experience their teacher's passion, they get lit up to whatever the subject is. Our teachers need to be in environments where they can feel passionate, where this classroom becomes a place where they can live out and love what they get to teach, and in a school in which they feel that they belong. It's especially important for our teachers of color, who are such important influences for all of our students and our students of color in particular. Talia, how can people find out more about the work you're doing? So the stories are on the uncommission.org. So please go there to read their stories. And there will be a chance starting in the next few months to join us at the beginning as the pioneers of this next decade. And if you are working in belonging in schools and want to move towards STEM, if you are working on STEM in schools and know you need to move toward belonging, please come join us. Talia, before we go, just one more question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? I believe that everyone has genius inside them and has things that can light them up and that they are as diverse as we are. 
And what we need in the world are more people who are lit up and who are just full of excitement about the things they get to do. Help your young people find that thing and not to be afraid of what it is or not to feel like it has to conform to a set of expectations, but to know that when we are lit up and when we have a chance to explore and to live out those places of connection, we are our fullest selves. And what the world needs more than any subject area or any job, it needs people who are lit up and who are so full of hope and enthusiasm about the work and the exploring they get to do every day. And I say this as someone who has worked for nearly two decades in education, who is a mother of three daughters to help folks find their way to that spark and to spend as much time there to live that spark out as much as they can. Thanks again to Talia Milgram Elcott, founder and executive director of 100K and 10. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning, a Pittsburgh-based network of people and organizations that ignite engaging, relevant, and equitable learning practices in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. Learn more at remakelearning.org slash tomorrow.